In today's episode, we discuss the Greek Orthodox faith, the power of prayer, discipline, why life is war, staying focused, and more. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd ask that you hop on and leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today's show is brought to you by IcePod. Finally, an affordable, portable, and effective way to get the benefits of cold water immersion in the comfort of your own home. I opted for the Pro Bundle, which includes the IcePod, a water circulating pump, a special insulated lid, and a thermometer to check the temp of your water. Even in Georgia, the IcePod keeps my water between 60 and 70 degrees, and when I load it up with a 36-pack of water bottles that I use and refreeze after each session, I can easily get it around 50 degrees for the perfect cold water immersion experience. Despite being light and portable, the IcePod is super durable, and it's the perfect solution for anyone who wants to experience the benefits of cold water immersion without spending thousands of dollars for a home water chiller or trying to DIY your own. Cold immersion can help with recovery and muscle soreness, raise dopamine levels, help you wake up and be more alert, help you to burn more calories, mobilize brown fat, and more. Visit podcompany.com and use my special promo code SHANE50107 for $10 off your order, and each sale helps to support the show as well. Stay cool out there, people. Are you looking for the perfect high-protein snack that isn't loaded with stuff like MSG, nitrates, and sugar? Carnivore Snacks is the perfect high-protein snack made from quality grass-fed beef and salt. That's it. Each bag uses one pound of high-quality beef, lamb, pork, or chicken, salt, and nothing else. Aside from being easy, healthy, and convenient, they also taste great. These snacks are not just another jerky. They are way better. Give a bag a try, and I know you'll keep coming back. Check out Carnivore Snacks, spelled with an X, dot com, and enter coupon code SHANE05137 for 15% off your order, and each sale will help support the Renaissance Wisdom Podcast as well. Welcome to the Renaissance Wisdom Podcast, where ancient and modern wisdom come together to create a better way of living. I'm your host, Shane Sorensen, and each week we speak with successful people from a plethora of disciplines in search of wisdom from their own lives. Your own personal renaissance begins today. Let wisdom be your guide. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Renaissance Wisdom Podcast. I'm here with today's guest, Arthur Constantine. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Been been looking forward to uh, picking your brain a little bit. I see your your postings online. I think we got a lot of lot of things in common. So, why don't you just start out by telling us a little bit about you and your background? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm originally from the uh, San Francisco Bay Area. Grew up between Oakland and San Francisco. Um, Parents, uh, both uh, both immigrants. My dad's a full-blooded Canary Islander native, uh, but he actually was born in Cuba and narrowly escaped communism. Um, my mother is a French Basque and Italian. Um, so I, mean, I grew up in a very, um, you know, pretty culturally diverse background. Uh, grew up in a school that was actually predominantly Asian. It was highly academic, and that had a pretty big imprint on the way I sort of approached life with two really Euro parents at home and you know, predominantly Asian influences uh, at school. And, um, you know, I grew up, uh, 
singing uh, and acting and playing football uh, up until eighth grade. My mom's an opera singer, and my dad figured out I could throw, you know, a good 50, 60 yards at 12 years old. Um, and uh, then I wound up going to uh, Catholic school. I wound up getting kicked out of Catholic school for fighting. Well, I left before they kicked me out. And uh, went back to acting when I transferred high schools to a Christian high school in the area. And um, I should say an evangelical school. And uh, that brought me to drama school in England. Uh, my parents sort of pushed me to pursue it. Uh, so I was trained to be a professional actor at a conservatory in London. Um, and then I, uh, I decided, you know, it really wasn't for me. I learned a lot of valuable lessons, but while I was over there, I started doing Muay Thai and that kind of set my world on fire. The other thing that I, I really fell in love with when I was about 15, uh, was writing that an English teacher who taught me how to love to write and how to believe at the typewriter, so to speak. And came home back to Oakland. And uh, started working in Silicon Valley, and you know, I realized that I didn't want to do this sort of nine to five, you know, you know, four hundred one k cushy benefits, um, but zero vitality, zero meaning in life. I mean, if you're if you're someone in tech because you love it, you know, you you eat, sleep, breathe coding. That's one thing. But I know a lot of people who are in it for the money and. They sort of numb themselves with IPAs and sports ball, you know, after work on Friday. I've seen it time and time again across the bay. And I knew it just wasn't for me. And I decided to start working as a bouncer at night to train Muay Thai during the day. Uh, became a barback, a bartender, a bar manager. Um, and I was pursuing fighting uh, professionally uh, in Muay Thai. And uh, I got a lower back injury that I sustained that I had to rehab myself. Um, so after learning under a bunch of strength and conditioning ex experts of various different disciplines, be it all-time strongman or athletic training or kettlebell, but I trained under a Tennessee state champion, powerlifter and bodybuilder. I had to start educating myself, uh, in terms of physical therapy to heal my own lower back injury. And, um, I, uh, then after that, uh, you know, 2020 came around and, um, you know, I was planning on fighting the World Classic in Orlando, and then COVID hit, and I had $3,000 of overhead, and all my income disappeared overnight. And uh, I decided to not take unemployment, because it went against every fiber of my being. So I worked overnight security two hours each way, still below the poverty line, barely making ends meet, and um, injured again, re-injured, um, seek the pride, malnourished. And that's sort of how I came back to faith. I came back to Orthodox Christianity, which I discovered in 2017. Um, I fell away from the 2018 through a lot of deception uh, and a lot of you know the wrong influences in my life in the bartending world, and uh, even even influences close to my family, uh, and even someone at church we later found out was someone who was trying to attract people from the church and sort of slip little lies to pull people away. And um, in 2018, I had written this poem that sort of emerged in my, began emerging in my psyche as I, you know, became more disciplined in orthodoxy, titled Blood and Rain, that sort of fully manifested uh, my first orthodox Easter, which we call Pascha in 2018. And, um, you know, when I fell away from the faith, and this whole crucible of overnight security came about uh, during the summer of 2020, uh, for a year until the summer of 2021, 
it was a it was a steep climb back to faith that started with me trying to live with vitality again and live by the words that I wrote in that poem titled Blood and Rain. So it started back up in December of 2020 and I started writing and podcasting. Um, fixed my injury, uh, managed to new, last until bars opened back up and then I pursued uh, Muay Thai fighting again. I'm in a fight team in San Francisco. Had to leave when they asked me, when Oakland started asking bartenders to check people's vaccinations. Uh, came to Austin for 10 days and then I uh, drove up to Chicago for the first time uh, to meet my girlfriend, now fiance, for the first time. And I've been here since uh, scaling a business to support us, uh, anti-fragile fitness and online training business. And uh, finally going to be competing uh, in September in Muay Thai. And I'm going to be, that's the short of it. Yeah, it's a uh, interesting trajectory. Um, I, I always love learning a little bit more about people's backgrounds. And I think there's a a lot of, lot of parts of your story that people can relate to, you know, COVID, it was a, was a big thing. I think, I think that COVID caused a lot of people to wake up a little bit to, to sort of snap out of the, the nine to five trap that we've collectively fallen into as a society where, like you said, you, you just kind of accept that life in America is to wake up, drive an hour to work, spend nine hours of your day there with your lunch break, then go home or go to a bar, get a couple drinks, watch, watch the game on TV, go to sleep and wake up and do it again. And I think that definitely COVID snapped people out of that a lot because there were so many people at home. And I, it's interesting because it was such an overreach obviously by the government to to kind of force everyone to stop going to work to to force everyone to stay home not to be able to engage in their lives anymore and it i think that may have been one of the unintended consequences that that came from that is that a lot of people realize that they're stuck in this trap that they've been sold right and it just it snapped them out of it a little bit um you know i I've spent a lot of time too, especially in my younger years, just thinking about the nine to five and just that whole sort of American dream of going to work and getting drunk and starting all over again. And it is something that ties into religion for me. And I, I've been going through a lot of uh, spiritual growth and a lot of re- kind of religious experience myself in, in the recent months has been this realization that life really is everything that we do is just this sort of distraction. And the more immersed we become in our day-to-day life, the more immersed, even in things that are meaningful, even in building a family, even in giving back, we, we became, we become so focused on our day-to-day life that we don't stop to think that there is something more. It, it disconnects us. And I, that's something that I've just been coming back to a lot lately is that there, there really is more, no matter what we're doing in this moment, there, there is something more powerful. There is something more lasting that is out there that, that we forget every moment that we spend immersed in, in living and immersed in our body. 
and it, it sounds like that, that that's something that you kind of went through a little bit too. Um, I guess going through like all the acting and, you know, pursuing your, your goals and dreams and realizing that at the end of the day, those things are small in comparison to something much greater than ourselves. So that, that kind of leads me into specifically, like I've, I've had a lot of curiosity about the Eastern Orthodox tradition and, and I understand you're, you know, you're not a priest or anything like that, but as, as someone, you know, going through the experience of getting into Eastern Orthodox, can you, can you tell us a little bit about Eastern Orthodox for somebody that's completely unfamiliar with it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, so the way, the way I sort of came into it too, I mean, all my blood technically comes from Catholic Europe. So I, you know, was sort of CEO Catholic until eighth grade when my parents wanted me to go to Catholic high school. So they put me in choir and, you know, I did my first communion and whatnot and you know, youth group and all that. And, um, I just, to be frank, I, I just, um, the, the only real solace I found in Catholicism were the homilies of a particular priest. Um, so then, you know, when I switched schools to an evangelical school, I naturally went evangelical and gave it a shot. Um, and when I came back from Brahma school, I was evangelical for a couple of years and I, I came to this sort of realization that a lot of the advice that I've been given was sort of, yeah, there's a lot of roots in the Bible, but the Bible can take many interpretations. And then it's like, who do you trust with the interpretations? There has to be, and even the Bible itself talks about how like the Bible isn't the, you know, the sole source of God. Um, and I also felt that pieces of advice I was being given were more American than they were Christian. Um, which is tough. Mm. It's, it's very difficult to separate yourself from that when you grew up in America. Um, so I, I think maybe the fact that I, I sort of finished growing up in England at 19, that, you know, that kind of gave me uh, a peer into and kind of my acting background too, um, sort of like a separation, this, this muscle of separation, detachment. So you sort of step out of your body and actually look at yourself. And you try to see what's going on in what I'd call the background world, right? It's like you sort of see the music in the background. And I just felt that there was a, there's a lack of depth that I was experiencing. Um, and I said, well, there has to, I, I want to be Christian. Like, what is, what does that mean to be Christian? Um, and I had, I, I had experienced, uh, I had witnessed a monk from Mount Athos at a Greek Orthodox church at a Greek festival in the Bay Area at uh, one point. And I remember that. And I was listening to the, the compositions of Orville Park, an Eastern Orthodox composer, and I said, well, what about that? Like, what's up with that? And I started to do my research, and um, it's essentially the church that Christ founded in the Book of Acts. Um, it hasn't changed. It's gone through seven councils to determine... Um, you know, specific questions of what we believe as Christians and to fight certain heresies about the nature of Christ, um, especially the 100% human, 100% God nature. So those are the only real changes of, of orthodoxy. Um, but it's, it hasn't gone through a reformation and it hasn't gone through a papacy. Uh, it was established in, 30, in the year 33. And there's been an understanding since you know, the time of the apostles that there's a physical church body and a spiritual church body. And 
you know, I mean, I've been Catholic and I'm not, I'm not really saying this to offend anybody, but when you look through the history of the early church, there is no evidence of the other patriarchs, uh, the patriarch of Antioch, Jerusalem, Alexandria, and Rome, the original four. There's no evidence of all of them reporting to Rome. Um, they met in councils and made decisions together. Um, later on, um, my patron saint, St. Constantine, called the Council of Nicaea, which established the Nicene Creed and fought, uh, as I mentioned before, the Arian heresy. And what happened with that is they prayed and made decisions uh, with the belief that Christ is the head of the church, no single man is the head of the church. Um, the patriarchs are equals. Um, there's a special, what was called primacy about the Bishop of Rome, uh, the first among equals, but not supremacy. He wasn't the, the leader at the time. And, um, and the reason he had that primacy was, uh, because St. Peter, uh, ended his, you know, he, he finished his life as the Bishop of Rome. He's originally the Bishop of Antioch, uh, and St. Paul was martyred in Rome. So there's a special air about Rome and St. Constantine made Rome a Christian nation uh, with the Edict of Milan, which, uh, ended the norm for Christians being martyrdom, um, which then gave the space to really, uh, establish the church further, um, Later on, it was five patriarchates. Uh, it was Constantinople, Alexandria, Antioch, and Rome. And the church remained that way uh, for about a thousand years, uh, until 1054 with the Great Schism, uh, where Rome tore away. And, they, and then they sort of started, sort of started sending bishops to uh, eastern provinces, uh, Cappadocia, uh, you know, where the Byzantine Empire is. Um, and they started claiming uh, the fealty to Rome um, this is, this is, uh, due to three key factors. Um, one more gradual, uh, when the Byzantine Empire spanned the entirety of, you know, hugging the Mediterranean all the way to Spain, uh, it was normal for everyone to speak both Latin and Greek. So there was a, in terms of sort of becoming closer to God, there's the Latin uh, word that kind of comes to redemption, as in being removal of sin. And, um, there's the, Greek, which is uh, theosis, which is basically deification, becoming more godlike, which they're sort of one and the same, but they're, in terms of language, have a slightly different essence to them. When the pagan Slavs uh, sort of took the Balkans and separated the two empires, over time, the West only spoke Latin and the East only spoke Greek. So that's like a more sort of, I don't want to say innocent, but a more gradual, natural separation. Um, the addition to the Nicene Creed, uh, where the, that came out of Spain called the Filioque in the 500s became more and more mainstream in the West, uh, which is basically saying that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Son and the Father as opposed to the Son, uh, or as, as, sorry, as opposed to only the Father. Um, and when Charlemagne uh, wanted to be crowned by the Pope, uh, he wanted that to be the, the sole divine uh, marker of his rule. So there was pressure from the Frankish Empire for the, the Bishop of Rome to adopt the Filioque. Uh, and that all came to a headway in 1054 uh, with the Great Schism, um, where the Pope declared himself, you know, the sole authority of the Church. Uh, and the Eastern Patriarch said, "This is, you know, this is not the case. Uh, we do not believe in original sin. Um, that is, uh, that began with the Catholics. Uh, that's another key difference. Um, we've been worshiping the same uh, divine liturgy since the time of Saint Mark, uh, which is filled with uh, the Gospel, filled with." Um, psalms and it really what it is is we put prayer uh, as the first and foremost discipline prayer then scripture then silence with god 
um, because when we look at the times of Scripture, uh, we look at when Scripture was fully compilated as a Bible. There were 200 years in the early church before that was, you know, the case. Um, scripture is food, but really, what is drawing us closer to God to know who God is and know who we are is, is prayer. So, our prayer rule is is a key part of our praxis. If you go into our churches, there are no pews. We're standing. We're facing uh, what's called the iconostasis, which is a, a gate of icons of you know, Christ and the Virgin Mary and, and other saints. And it's uh, facilitated by the clergy to create this atmosphere of deepening prayer as a group, which could be far more powerful than just uh, individually. Um, it's to create that environment and exposure to the Holy Spirit to sort of grow closer to God. Um, that's that's kind of the very, very condensed version of our history, uh, the differences mm-hmm. between us and the, the West, and uh, sort of detailing some of the bits of our praxis. The reason why a lot of people haven't heard of us is, um, I mean, Greece and the Byzantium and Russia were the two big champions, and Byzantium fell in, um, on that unfortunate day, May 9th. Um, you know, Russia became the sole champion, but then the Soviet Union hit. So really, there were very few Orthodox countries. Uh, there was some influence in America with the Alaska Natives, uh, and San Francisco, where I'm from, actually, the birthplace of American Orthodoxy in the lower 48. But with the, the return of the the return of the Russian Orthodox Church, now 100 million strong, we're beginning to see more influence uh, across Europe and in the United States. I think during COVID, the reason why Orthodoxy is sort of blowing up now. Um, is we didn't really fold to the godless authority. Um, we didn't, you know, shut down our churches. We're not putting up pride flags. You know, we we have a history of martyrdom. We have a history of enduring the Soviet Union. We have a history of enduring, protecting Europe for 800 years from the expansion of uh, militaristic Islam. So to us, COVID was nothing. And I think a lot of Americans started to see, you know, who was really going to dig their feet in. And, you know, across the board, Orthodox churches, we never stopped worshiping. So that's a... Uh, it's kind of an application for America and the world as well. Yeah, I, I appreciate the the historical background. I, I learned a little bit about and, you know, talk about in, in my book, um, you know, Renaissance Wisdom, How to Flourish in the Modern Day in the history section. Um, you, you can't really study the Renaissance and what led up to the Renaissance without looking at the schism and without looking at, you know, the, the influence of uh the Greek Orthodox and, you know, just the, the Eastern empire in general, mm-hmm. part of what really fueled the Renaissance itself was, you know, when Constantinople fell and I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I want to say off the top of my head, I think it was like 1454. Um, but, you know, it, at that time there were, there were a lot of, you know, basically Greek speaking, Eastern minded individuals that were scholars that were fleeing and a lot of them found their way into Italy and they Mm -hmm. brought with them Greek texts that had essentially been lost by the Western world. As you mentioned in Italy and in the Western world, Latin was predominantly spoken and there were very, very few people who could even speak or read or write Greek anymore. And many of the ones that were able to were really terribly inefficient at it and we're, we're not really proficient in general. So mm-hmm. as these scholars started to come over, it actually contributed very greatly to the Renaissance itself because they brought with them works 
of Plato and, you know, Marcus Aurelius and things that were written and lost over time because of the, 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 the change in language and the change in fluency of the population. Mm-hmm. Um, how does, um, how does like the, the Eastern Orthodox church or like what, what is kind of the view on, you know, philosophy, for example, or just the classical kind of tradition and knowledge, like what, what's the relationship there? Because I know with the Catholic church, for example, there was a long period of time where the Catholic church was very, very oppressive to philosophical doctrine and thought. And, you know, it was basically considered sinful to do this sort of inner work and study philosophy. But later as time went on, you know, the Catholic church began to accept the doctrine. I think that though these philosophical works were not divine, they they were not divinely inspired, they would ultimately cause people to look within to, to better themselves and to become better human beings. And they, I think a lot of people believe that like, if you look within that eventually that's going to lead you to God. That it's like, if, if you're genuinely out there searching for truth, you're looking within yourself, you're, you're meditating, you're thinking about wisdom, that that'll always kind of eventually lead you to God. So I guess, I, what are your, what are your thoughts on, you know, classical tradition, the classical world and, and how maybe philosophy integrates to Eastern Orthodox? Yeah, it's a solid question. I mean, I think there's somewhat of a tempestuous relationship with philosophy and orthodoxy, but it's not tempestuous in a term of, in terms of like we outright or anti-philosophy or anything of the sort. I mean, I think, um, you know, I was having a discussion at a Greek festival recently and, you know, talking about how God um, allowed Hellenism to exist as a precursor to Christianity and, um, Plato and Aristotle predicted, you know, uh, there being one God. Um, even mm-hmm. Virgil, uh, who wrote the Aeneid, he, he was sort of prophesying the Messiah coming, prophesying Christ coming, and he knew he wouldn't live to see it, he knew he was just out of range. Um, I think the, the caveat with, with orthodoxy and philosophy is not to fall into humanism, um, in the sense that St. Augustine is sort of revered in the West as like being one of the most important mm-hmm. saints. He's like the founder of Western philosophy. Um, we, he's a saint in our, in our church, um, but there are certain things that uh, are very controversial takes, uh, for one being that sex is a sin even in, um, even in the mystery of marriage, uh, which St. Saint, Saint John Chrysostom, uh, you know, the great patriarch of Constantinople, refutes. Um, despite earlier being, you know, very much rooted in the tradition of monasticism. As far as philosophy goes, um, our idea in terms of our praxis is that we begin with God. So we begin the day with God. We begin the day separated from the world to then actually properly interact with the world. And there are certain dynamics of metaphysics um, in terms of not only metaphysical structures both in a literal sense uh in, in a sense in terms of thought where you can begin to see patterns um jacques derrida actually you know despite being you know vilified as a postmodernist, uh his essay an event perhaps is 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 a truth of metaphysics that cannot be denied 
um, where there's like a sort of crystalline structure of a zeitgeist of a time. And then an event happens, and the core of that structure changes and changes the zeitgeist of a time. That is seeing into a truth of the way we feel as a collective about the time. There are certain histories made in moments, and those moments are those events that he's talking about. Um, so, and, and another another case is, you know, the case of sort of cyclical history, right? We can analyze uh, patterns, especially when we sort of study Polybius. Um, sort of, we have uh, the primitive king, right? And then there's peak uh, monarchy, and then it descends into a tyrant rule. Uh, then we have the precursor of um, you know, sort of like a representative republic, and we have the peak uh, then we have sort of oligarchy. Uh, and then we have democracy, uh, early democracy. It rises to its peak, and then it goes down to where we are now, um, which is sort of uh, mob rule. And so we're kind of due, I think everyone's sort of looking, people who study history, people who study cyclical history in particular, we're sort of waiting for you know, the Napoleon quote to happen, for someone to pick the crown out of the gutter. Um, yep. Those are metaphysics. This is philosophy. And so the understanding is as long as we're rooted in our faith, we're rooted in our praxis, there's no reason why we can't read Polybius or can't read Derrida or can't read um, Vico or Spengler or Yaki or anything, or Archimedes, anything of the sort, right? And, you know, that way we can have an, a context towards God, towards witnessing these things rather than worshiping these dynamics themselves because a lot of people who are really... Um, philosophically minded, but don't have religious roots, they'll begin to look for divinity in these metaphysics themselves. Um, I think the person who took that to the unteenth degree and descended into madness is Nietzsche. We're seeing that now. Um, but I also think Nietzsche was tapped into, a, and this is a, something I've sort of experienced both in New York and Chicago. Um, he was actually listening to like a very sentient, dark spirit that was twisting these metaphysical sort of findings that he had. So that's sort of our relationship with philosophy. It's that you know, we, we, as long as we're rooted, um, then we can begin to um, sort of define these things. And you know, there are saints who are martyrs, there are saints who are monarchs, there are saints who are miracle workers, and there were saints who were great theologians who studied philosophy in order to um, sort of stress-proof their own theology. Um, they were learning logic and rhetoric for this. You know, St. Gregory the Theologian, St. Gregory Palamas. Um, so it's it's not tempestuous in the sense that we're anti-philosophy, but as long as the order of operations and hierarchy is there, um, it's it's definitely something that is not antithetical with orthodox thought. Right. Yeah. W well said. And it's it, it is it's very complicated, uh, as you kind of alluded to. I think even even Augustine, when you look at his writings, he was very conflicted at times about his study. I mean, he. I believe it was in uh, his confessions, he talks about how this kind of love for wisdom or this love for philosophy almost became a sort of spiritual sickness for himself. Mm -hmm. And I, I think people really wrestled in the Renaissance with this as well. You know, Patriarch's favorite philosopher out of all the philosophers that he read, he, he carried a, a pocket-sized copy of the confessions with him all the time. and. He also expressed at times that he felt that maybe this this love of philosophy or this love of reading took him away a bit from God. And I, I think that, that the Renaissance was really interesting in the sense that just 
Christianity was very widespread at that time. It, it was a different type of humanism that was experienced in the Renaissance than the humanism that we have today, right? The, the humanism of the Renaissance was still identified as Christian. And I think still at, at least accepted the existence of God and in, in its own way glorified that. But it, the modern humanism has basically completely separated from the idea of God. And it has just elevated man to the point of, of being God and kind of replacing God with, um, you know, with, with philosophy and something I've, I've, I've been thinking a lot about is, you know, even, you know, reading through Proverbs, it, it talks about Lady Sophia, Lady Wisdom being there as God created the universe and watching the, the glory that happened there. And I think that is a very slippery slope in the sense that, you know, I know that the Bible says when it comes to faith, it's, it's best to kind of be like a child. And, you know, part of being a child is just sort of like accepting the magic and the wonder and not really wanting to question or understand, but just sort of accepting with faith. And for many people, I think that's, you know, that's sufficient, right? Just, just to accept that faith. But for some people, and I think that I'm one of those types, there's just this deeper yearning for understanding. And something that I've thought a lot about lately is this, this knowledge or this yearning for knowledge, this yearning for wisdom. It can be a thing that leads you to look within, to understand yourself better, to understand your weaknesses, to understand your propensities, to understand more about your impulses and to, to, to have a deeper relationship with God because you, you just have a deeper understanding. You can relate on a, on a higher level, but it can also take you in a very dangerous place where if you go purely into the path of logic and you, you can fall into this sort of modern postmodern scientific mindset, which I think I was a little bit at danger there for a bit. Um, and I, I kind of come, came back into a balance, but you know, this, this modern mindset where everything that's magical, everything that is <laughs> divine has, has been reduced down to just like a purely scientific thing. And everything that can't be explained by science is just basically non-existent. It's a really, it's a really dangerous mindset and it, it leads us into a lot of the modern problems that, that we have today, right? Where there's, there is no right or wrong. There is no absolute truth. There is no thing in, in life or in our lives or in, within us that is sacred. And you, you sort of end up like you, you mentioned Nietzsche, right? When Nietzsche talks about God is dead and he he saw the writing on the walls of what that meant when when god died everything would be permissible and the majority would just descend into chaos which also touches on what you were talking about with like the cycle of government and i think that it's very true that we're looking around at the end stages of that democracy right now it it's devolved into mob rule we've lost collectively all touch with any sort of grounding or wisdom to something beyond ourselves. And 
it's going to be interesting to see, as you mentioned, like the Napoleon character, like who, who picks up the crown at this point, I think. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you, you touched on a lot of, a lot of things that have been on my mind there as well on a, on a personal level, you know, for you specifically, why is religion or your faith or your belief in God so important to you? Like, what do you pull out of it as an individual? I mean, it's, it's life or death, right? Um, yeah. I mean, when you're asking an Orthodox Christian, are you saved? Or our standard answer, as Metropolitan Police does wear, uh, memory eternal, would say, I'm being saved. We don't believe in sola fide in the sense that, oh, I believe in God, so I'm saved. Okay, well, you can believe in God and then not pray ever again, and you can be gluttonous and slothful, and you can rape and kill and not be repentant. No, we don't believe in that at all. We believe that faith is to, yeah, we are, we are saved by faith alone, a faith that is constantly striving. Those who will endure to the end will be saved. Um, and... You know, if we're constantly striving to be closer to God and to do works that reflect that faith in God, and God is telling us to go somewhere that, you know, in a purely logical standpoint, would made absolutely no sense, and we walk anyway, that is a living, breathing faith, which, you know, is a road to salvation. Um, but not only that, it's to... I mean, I, I don't know... I don't know who I am without God. Like, whatever it is I say that I am without God is nonsensical. It just is. Like, I wrote the other day that if I don't start the day, like, every day I wake up feeling like a blind man. And if I don't pray and then train heavily and read things that cut to my bones and have me question and give me this sort of awareness spiritually, physically, and mentally, I don't really know who it is that I am. Like, and that, that resets every single day. And, you know, this is somewhat, I mean, this sort of mirrors a sort of a cursor to my faith on us sort of studying the, this mentality that maybe SEALs had, or you earn your trident daily. It really doesn't matter what you did yesterday or here now. The kingdom of, of heaven is at hand now, not yesterday, not two weeks from now, now. So what is it that you're going to do right now? Where is God calling me to go? What is it he's calling me to do in this instant? Um... What war is he having me fight right now, spiritually, uh, in terms of relationships? Who is it does he need me to pray for? What does it he need me to do with my company? Uh, do I take this fight or not? Like, it's just every single decision. It's, it's oxygen. Um, when we think about Christ, he conquered both the physical and the spiritual because he was God. So to sort of try to strip the, the physical world from the spiritual world it just leads to discord. And it leads to, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a compa- it's a kind of compartmentalization that is antithetical with being a Christian. There are certain types of compartmentalization in terms of tasks that, you know, is, is efficiency in a lot of high functioning people. If we're, you're having compartmentalization between your faith and the real world, you're not. Being... So hmm. For me, it's, it's, you know, he will point and shoot where I need to go. I mean, he pointed he very clear that I needed to take care of this, my, this girl, my fiance, before we even married. And that's been a learning curve to get out of San Francisco, even though I really didn't want to leave. I, I'm a 
Christian and a son, and I'm about to be a husband, I'll be a father, and after all those essential things, I'm a San Francisco first and foremost. It, it means everything to me. And it's the birthplace of American Muay Thai, it's the birthplace of American Orthodoxy, it's founded by the Spanish, and it has a deep root of, of Basque and Italian culture there. To hate that city would be to hate myself, and I had to leave. I didn't want to leave. God told me to leave. So, we're not called to lean on our own understanding. So we have a prayer in, in our morning prayer where every day that tells us, enlighten the eyes of our understanding. So if, 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 we're, if our understanding is God's understanding, we will be walking the right way. If we don't, we might as well walk off a cliff. Well said. And you keep going back to prayer, which is something that I've been really becoming more disciplined about. And, you know, I've had some conversation with guests and, you know, one of the things I frequently have thought about is, for example, you know, when, when you look at Islam, one of the things that they do is they pray at set intervals throughout the day. And then you mm -hmm. look at kind of Western Christianity, you know, you can Catholicism or the evangelicals or whatever you want to look at. You see so many people that are like Sunday only Christians, right? Where they, they go about their, their week, you know, they're terrible to people at work. They drive. And I understand that nobody is perfect, right? Like no, no one's ever going to reach perfection or, or even be able to reach like close to, to kind of what, you know, Jesus achieved in his life. But so I know we all fall short. However, you know, there's, there's still degrees that you can see just by, by using your logic. And you see people that go throughout their life and they're, you know, they, they backbite people. They're, they're stressed out. They're angry. They, they treat the people that they love badly. They neglect their relationship with God. And then they, they go into church on Sunday and they listen to the, you know, the high energy pastor talk about holding the door open for people for an hour and they, they feel good and they, they go out and they flip somebody off that cut them off in traffic five minutes later. And that is so disconnected from, from God. And I guess that's what I was talking about when I said that I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking lately about how just the, the world is the, the physical body. It's, it's kind of the distraction from, from God and from something that's deeper within you. And prayer is, this is through my experience, um, you know, having nothing to do with Eastern Orthodox, which is kind of what I've seen is that when I pray, when I take periodic times throughout the day to, to thank God, to be grateful, to ask for guidance, I, I change. It, it grounds me, as you mentioned, right? When, when I'm not doing that, I'm, I'm running around, I'm stressed. I, I get frustrated with people at work. Um, I'm a totally different person, but if I take four or five times a day, first thing when I wake up on my way to work, a couple times through work, once, you know, once on the way home, once before I go to bed, so you're talking five or six times, I say a prayer, I think about what I'm grateful for, I think about, you know, what what Jesus did. It it really grounds me. It turns me into a different person. I'm connected to something that when I'm just going through life and I'm doing the day to day, when I'm doing that nine to five, when I'm immersed in jujitsu and all these different things that I'm doing, I, I really lose track of that connection. So I think, 
Yeah, I mean, I'm going to have to look more into Eastern Orthodox because I, I think that there's a huge, huge importance on prayer. And yes, reading scripture, yes, you know, inspiring your mind, yes, looking within, all those things are important. But I think there is something so humbling and so special about praying to something beyond yourself and just kind of humbling yourself in the face of something much larger. And another thing that I've thought about is across world religions, when you look at Buddhism, for example, you see this dynamic of us wrestling with our bodies, right? So in Buddhism, they'd say that, you know, reaching nirvana is sort of the absence of suffering, but they say that life is suffering. Everything that you do in life is the suffering. And so in a, in an essence, right, they're kind of saying the way to reach nirvana, the way to reach peace is to sort of abstain from life, to go within to the spiritual. And in a, in a way, when you look at what Jesus preached, when you look at the sacrifices that he made in his life, sort of the same thing. Like Jesus was out in the desert and he was fasting for the 40 days and 40 nights and Satan came to him and offered him bread. And it's for Jesus, for something, for someone that was so connected to the spiritual, that was so connected to, to God, that was part of God, even just to eat some bread would, would disconnect, would take him back into his body, would kind of remove him from his, his spiritual being. And I think that that is, it's something that I've thought so, so much about is just how much of a distraction everything that we experience in life is. And I, I think that's the special thing about prayer is that it, it takes you back to God. It takes you back to that connection. It removes you from your body for a moment. And it's just you and God there, you know, having, having a conversation almost. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the, the separation from the world that we see in prayer is in, in, in orthodoxy is perhaps actually to go back into the world to interact with it properly. Um, mm -hmm. I noticed too that, you know, but the first question I actually asked first orthodox priest was, can I still be a fighter? And he said, yeah, yeah, it's a contest. It's a great one. As long as it doesn't blacken your heart. Um, and so when I came back to Orthodoxy, I started going through Holy Virgin Cathedral in San Francisco, which, where you can see the, the uncorrupted, you know, haven't decomposed remains of St. John Maximovich. And I would go to liturgy every morning before I'd go to practice, and my sparring and my, my drilling, everything I was doing just skyrocketed because I was so rooted in God that I could just see the movements for what they were themselves, the dynamics of fighting for what they were without any real emotion or anger or fury or anything of the sort. There was just deficiency. Um, when I was still bartending, um, and, you know, I was in the marina district, you know, full of sorority girls who, quite frankly, were harassing me quite a bit. And, you know, idiot frat boys who, you know, were trying to be my friend and I really didn't have the interest because they're talking about, you know, sleeping with the chick who's harassing me saying like hey man you should get after that I'm like I'm not that guy man like you know and so i'd get i'd become kind of an asshole if i'm being honest i would just be like this bitter bartender and you know my um 
my manager my manager liked that because he's just like, yeah, girl, you're good looking enough that you can get away with being asshole bartender. You know, girls love asshole bartenders. Um, and I was just like, I don't really think this is a reflection of my face. Like, I can have firm ground, you know, to not be harassed without, you know, being an asshole. And there's this prayer that kind of went through my mind when I was really struggling with this, um, the prayer of Metropolitan Philorette, and there's a part of it that says, um, teach me to act firmly and wisely without embittering and embarrassing others. Um, mm. And that really resonated with me. Like, there's a strength to, you know, finding the precision of language to keep a boundary with these kinds of people without being rude, just being, you know, absurdly polite but firm. Um, it's, you know, it's that's sort of the the duality, the dichotomy of sort of Christ being the Lamb of God and the Lion of Judah. Um, so the prayer, it doesn't, I mean, with, with the Buddhists and, um, I mean, the reason we have monks in orthodoxy is their profession is to pray for the world. Like that is, is a saying, it's 10, 10 minutes of prayer in the city is worth two, is worth two hours of prayer in the monastery. Right. But other than monastics, you know, we have to, we do have to interact with the world. And I think, um, mm -hmm. There's a knife's edge where we can sort of be so focused on prayer that we don't actually do what God's calling us to do. Then we can be so focused on the actions that you know we go wayward. We're always on this knife's edge, um, and when we sort of focus on that in the day to day, um, our day to day becomes you know fruitful. So to speak. Yeah, that, very wise. There's always that. There's always that balance that we have to seek and. You, you alluded to, to Jesus there. It, it's, it's interesting, right? Because he was not afraid to fight for against injustice. You know, when he, when he went into the temple and he saw the money changers, he wasn't afraid to flip over the tables and make a big scene and let everybody know that this was absolutely unacceptable, that they had converted a place of worship into, you know, a, a financial transaction. However, he also tells us that the, the greatest commandments are to, to love your God with all your heart and to love one another as, as he's loved us. Mm -hmm. And I think it's something that we have to do. And this is whether you're Christian or not, whether you just, I mean, maybe for some of my listeners, you're not Christian. Uh, maybe you just believe in the ways of wisdom. And I, I think that they're very connected in a lot of ways, but you know, just because you've achieved some wisdom, I think it's important to remember that there's still a lot of wisdom that you don't have and you achieving some wisdom doesn't really give you the, you know, the, the right to sort of elevate yourself above others. And it, same thing, if, if you have a faith, if you believe you're, you're a Christian, it, it doesn't mean that you should have kind of a feeling of disdain for people who are not, or think that they're below you because really the 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 gospel of Jesus is about going out and being the light in the world and helping others to find that same faith. And if we're, you know, if we're snarky with people, if we feel that they're sort of beneath us, then we're, we're really going against everything that the Jesus came to do. Um, I mean, at least in my opinion, I'm not sure how you feel about it, but. Yeah, I mean, we, we certainly stumble, but I think, you know, we, we're supposed to be embodying, we're supposed to be a living example, you know, it's, uh, if you yeah. kind of think you're above everyone, you know, you've fallen into pride and basically played yourself, so, um, yeah, I totally agree. I wanted to ask you, too, um, 
you know, t- tell us a little bit about the the Blood and Rain podcast. Like, what, what is what's kind of the mission there? You know, what do you, what are you doing with that project? Things of vitality, being training or martial spirit or um, basically any kind of martial or physical art. So reading Clausewitz, you know, going through Antifragile, going through On War, uh, going through the Book of Five Rings for the ten thousandth time because the two books I read every day are the Bible and the Book of Five Rings. Um, by Miyamoto Wasashi. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, you know, literature. Um, you know, I'm doing a Nobel Prize reading challenge. I'm reading one work of, uh, liter- of one work from every Nobel Prize winner in literature. Um, and then, you know, I'd say the sort of the fourth thing is, um, it is, uh, is geopolitical, honestly. You know, that's sort of been a new wing for me in the past. You know, when we really un- try to understand the culture war that we're fighting now, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I, I guess this is sort of being narrowed down to, you know, faith, war, and, and poetry. But, um, like, you know, when we're sort of understanding the culture war that we're in now, it's a Christian war, but we also need to sort of understand the nuances of what we can do as men in the day-to-day um, to sort of uh, create more entropy uh, in what some would call the dissident right or post the post-liberal world or the reactionary world that is gaining steam not just because people are fed up with the current status quo, but like we mentioned earlier in, in you know, Polybius, that sort of, uh, that sort of analyzed metaphysic of governance, it's, uh, it's, it's time. So, um, we want, we want to make sure that we're not sort of inviting, you know, this totalitarian, um, you know, nightmare too. So, um, you know, analyzing, you know, the cyclical historians, Spengler, Yaki, Foucault, uh, Vito, Mosca, and the like, um, analyzing, you know, what it means to be Hegelian. Um, you know, there's a lot of people think Hegelian is just a left-wing thing. There is such a thing as a right-wing Hegelian, but it kind of died in World War II, to be honest. Um, understanding, um, you know, the different shifts uh, in cultural warfare and how it's being waged now and where it's going and what we can do about it. So um, it's, a, it, it's somewhat of a broad brushstroke, but if you kind of like step away from it, you kind of see a hierarchy there, or one could say the, the four archetypes, you know, the king would be faith, because that's, that's the top, right? Um, the warrior would be discussing the, the various vitality arts, for lack of a better term that I'm just making up right now, whether that be um, understanding warfare, you know, and single combat, um, mixed martial arts, bladed combat, because they do have some background in bladed combat, firearms, uh, understanding, you know, war itself, uh, was talking about war also being, you know, immigration and famine and propaganda and things like that. Um, so that's the warrior archetype. Um, you know, the magician archetype is sort of discussing, you know, its original writing, right? Original concepts sort of dazzling. Um, and the lover archetype is sort of appreciating, you know, the, the greats that we had before us, you know, really just mm-hmm. getting really autistic about Fitzgerald and, Getting um, you know obsessive about Hempson, um, so yeah, that's uh, I, I don't know, maybe it's it's sort of it's it is going through somewhat of a metamorphosis, but I think those four aspects are really what I'm trying to hone in on. It's and it's kind of a philosophy of you know the way I think man should operate nowadays. It's it's like a more intense version of king, warrior, magician, lover because we're living in a really intense time, mm-hmm. and you know there's um. There's a lot of accounts out there that are really good on sort of honing in on just 
they just discuss masculinity itself and male to female relationships. And I'm I'm not really that guy. I'm trying to create a particular type of man. Both of my work is blood and rain, and uh, my work with anti fragile fitness. I'm trying to create hard, devout, you know, well spoken men who um, or can pray to God with a whole heart to tears in a gap of a split second, can fight to the death, can deadlift 600 pounds, and <laughs> can write a haiku after, you know, being inspired by, I don't know, reading Kenzo Buddha Oe. That's, uh, there's intensity within all of that. That's beautiful. And uh, we, we need that. So I, I appreciate the work you're doing. I, I think that be, because of how polarized the world is and how chaotic the world is we're, we're going to need and we need people that are willing to just sort of take a very hard stance on on certain topics and ideas and b- because of the world it just it's become so soft it's become so corrupted and so accepting and it's it's so strange it's it's almost like something out of a like it's it's an orwellian nightmare right where we're suddenly the need for acceptance has become so strong that any sort of desire to excel or or anything is has almost become inflaming to other people right like you, you see it in fitness where pe- people get shut down for you know posting pictures of themselves posing or talking about fitness because you're, you're fat shaming someone. It's like by, by you (laughs) choosing to excel as a human being, you're making somebody else feel bad. Or, you know, by you choosing to take a stance on traditional gender roles, for example, uh, you are, you're oppressing, you know, women or just this idea that by you taking a stance on something, and believing in something that you, you are kind of putting somebody else out. Right. And it's so important that people are willing to, to take a stand for what they believe in today, even if it makes someone upset or even if it, if it makes someone feel bad, right. It's not about shaming someone, but if you have a desire to better yourself and to develop your, your temple, right. To, to forge yourself through fitness, why, why should we be concerned that maybe someone else feels bad because you've got a six pack and they don't, it's a really, really kind of an absurd world that we live in, in so many ways, which, you know, brings me to the, you know, one of the last things I wanted to ask you about was I see in your posts and you talk a lot about war. You say that everything in life is, is a war. You know, t- tell me a little bit about that mindset and what you mean by that. Yeah, I mean, I spoke about a particular moment, and I think there were flashes of this when I was, especially when I was in drama school, and I just sort of really got to, I got my legs, and I was sort of top my class, and I was doing really well in voice high, and I was just sort of top my game. There's, like, I'm sort of winning the war of school, winning the war of training, um, but I noticed that they're like, you know, if I do one little decision, one little decision, I could just take the day off. That could snowball. Um, but I, I, there was a, there was a particular moment where I was I was still a bar bat, and you know, I just felt so 
alone in the world. And maybe that wasn't a bad thing, but I was, a, I was alone out of concern. I was like, is no one else seeing the world around us? Is no one else seeing this rot? This is, you know, fall mm-hmm. 2017. And I remember, you know, there was this, there was this girl I worked with, you know, very pretty girl. And, you know, I thought she was pretty, but I was actually in a time in my life where I thought I, my game plan was to be a professional fighter until 40 and then join a monastery. So in my mind, I was like never going to like be in a relationship again. I was never going to get married. I was never going to have sex again. So I sort of just deleted that from my mind. Um, but, and I, I had said no to this girl a couple of times and, you know, she was trying a different angle at the time. She was showing me a song while we were closing up the bar because I had my headphones in. Um, I was closing like a madman because like, after work, I would always go train at three in the morning. And, um, you know, she stops me and she says, hey, uh, can I play a song for you? And I was like, yeah, why not? So she grabs my phone and she plays a song called Roads, my portishead. And you know, the main lyrics are, can't everybody, can't anybody see we have a war to fight? And it's just, it cuts to my bones. Like, I'm getting chills just thinking about the moment now. And I just went home thinking about that. I'm like, no one gets it. My parents don't get it. They do in a political standpoint a bit. No, none of my coworkers get it. And people, even in the fighting gym, they don't get it. They're just, they're just fighters for the sake of fighting. They don't understand, like, what we've lost, the state of things that we're in. You know, yes, there are different cycles of hardship, but we're living in a time that is so antithetical with hierarchy that has actually never been seen before. There's been degeneracy. There's been mass violence. There's been genocide. Yeah, these are very terrible things. But these are outright things that are recognizable. These, this is out, that's outright war. These aren't silent assailants. We have a much more difficult war because it's everywhere and most people can't even notice it. There's a war for your children's minds. There's a war for your children's souls, what they're teaching you in their schools. There's a war for your endocrine system, whether or not you're touching microplastics, whether or not you're grounding, whether or not you've separated yourself from seed oils. There's a war for your soul quite literally and everything down is downstream of that so i think a lot of people sort of misconstrue that i'm like some warmonger no quite contrary (laughs) i want everyone to be winning the war in their day-to-day life so we can have peace but we live in a fallen world and the fact of the matter is we're going to be experiencing that until the day we die and hopefully god willing pass on in in your relationship is is a war to maintain that. You're raising your children, same thing. Your business, same thing. Your your prayer life, same thing. In martial arts, it's very clear. Did I do? Did I throw ten thousand kicks this week, or didn't I? Did I did I clinch spar fifty rounds this week, or didn't I? Did I lift the weight? Did I eat the food? Did I sleep the sleep? It's just constant little war to get you to get this one little decision to then snowball and throw you off. And, you know, that, mm-hmm. that's, that's somewhat taken from a Jockoism, you know, yeah, the <laughs> discipline. A, yep. I'm an avid listener of the Jocko podcast, and I'm very open about the fact that I ripped off the format of my podcast from the Jocko podcast. I am the first to say it every single time, but he says those little things of, you know, maybe you just, uh, just hit the snooze button or maybe you'll just, uh, then you'll have a donut and then, uh, you'll get off the path. You know, it's, 
it, it's it's an offshoot of that, but it's it's less of, it's not just about discipline. It's about understanding what's at stake with those disciplines that I, I kind of shift towards in my work. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's um I, I love that. I, I think that as you mentioned, every every moment that we're living it, it's a little war every every single second we're faced with decisions on how we're going to live our life and it's a war between doing the thing that we should do or doing the thing that's easy and sometimes there's multiple choices it's not always so much of a dichotomy where there there's only one or one choice or the other but something that i am having a war with is and have had been having a war with for a while is like my, my phone, it just, yeah. it just robs you. And it's, it's so difficult because I, I'm, I'm doing posts on Instagram. I'm, I'm doing a lot of work from my phone with social media, but there's just this desire in me to just delete all the social media and just sell my phone and just get like an old dumb phone that I can't do anything on. Um, and I, I wrestle with it so hard cause he just, I've gotten to the point where I have to, I, I got an Apple watch just so I could essentially still receive messages if I need to, but I'll, I'll take my phone and just stick it in a drawer where, because there's just this impulse that I can't, you can't fight it. As soon as you pick up the phone, there's the, there's this overwhelming desire that's been built into it. That's been created by algorithms to make you addicted that, you know, these little notifications that you get that, ping your ping your hormones and your neurotransmitters to just make you an addict like someone that's addicted to heroin and it's that that's a war to to take the phone and just put it in a drawer and shut the drawer the shut the drawer and say i'm not touching this thing until until five o'clock when i do my post or um yeah that like i said that that's just an example from from my life that i've been going through but there, there's little moments of war for everyone, for every single person. When you, when you're deciding to to go to the gym or not to go to the gym, or when someone says something that causes you to be angry for a second, you know how you choose to respond. There, there is always, always that war. And I, I like the idea of looking at it more as a war as opposed to discipline, because I think that, as you mentioned, the distinction there being discipline is just kind of saying okay, I, this is the right thing to do and I, I should do this or this is the thing that I've decided to do and I'm going to make myself to do it. But when you when you frame it in the context of it actually being a war, like I'm, I'm battling myself or I'm battling this thing to do the thing that I know that I need to do for the greater context, it makes it a little more urgent as opposed to just saying, well, I said I was going to go to the gym and I want to be disciplined and I want to stick to it. Versus I have a decision to go to the gym, make myself better and do the things that I know that I need to do to become the person that I would like to be. And I'm at war with the desire to sort of atrophy and just skip the whole experience. So I, I like that. I may, I may steal that from you a little bit. It's a, yeah, it's a go good mindset. <laughs> so to to wrap up, uh, I have a handful of questions here. I always ask the guests just to kind of uh, give some some tips to people that listen and give some insight into you. So, 
The the first thing I wanted to ask was, uh, you know, I know that you have some. What are your daily habits that you try to live by? Um, yeah, I mean, actually, <laughs> the main thing I'm trying to do is trying to really be disciplined at having my schedule be in 10 minute intervals, you know, and kind of run that like clockwork. But, you know, the ideal morning routine is pray for 30 minutes, um, eat some food, um, train, and then read something inspiring. So basically, I'm warming up, um, you know, spiritually, I'm warming up physically, and I'm warming up creatively. So that's kind of the, the ideal. Yeah, I, I follow a very, a very similar, uh, like a very similar kind of thing. I think that that's, you know, it gets, it gets you grounded and it just kind of gets you primed to go out and be your best for the day. Um, what about books? I, I think I probably already know the answer to this question since you, you talked about it earlier, but if, if you had two books that you would recommend to someone, what would they be? The book of five rings and anti-fragile, plain and simple. Um, my fitness business or source text is anti-fragile by Nassim Taleb. And, um, mm -hmm. it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's the, the whole thesis of it is there's no word in the English lexicon that's the opposite of fragile. You have tough and robust, which is resistant to, you know, pressure. Anti-fragile means to get better with pressure. And, uh, you know, the book of five rings, I mean, I, I read that every day and I get something out of it. He's, you know, he's someone who understands the metaphysics of combat. He's an identifier of metaphysics of combat that, you know, is unparalleled, honestly. Uh, at least when it comes to single, um, when it comes to, you know, single combat. Uh, I think the person who understands the metaphysics of, you know, grand combat would be Clausewitz, you know, in the text on war. Uh, so I know I kind of threw in three there, but yeah, on war, <laughs> Book of Five Rings, and uh, an anti-fragile. Yeah, I, I love Talib, too. Um, I have his, I have like a collector set of, of not, not his most recent one, but it's like the first four. And I, I do love anti-fragile and I, I often think of that analogy with, with the Hydra, right? Where yeah. anti-fragile is you get your head cut off and three grow back to take its place. You know, an, anti-fragile is, is taking a stress and actually becoming stronger from that stress as opposed to just surviving it. And that's, that's definitely something that I've taken in, in my life. And I, I believe deeply in philosophy. I think it is very aligned with some of the parts that I enjoy about stoicism, right? Is this idea that things that stress us or things that test us or the trials that we overcome, it's not just something that we survive, but if we can take that and transmute it into a growth that actually makes us stronger, right? That's, that's the true definition of anti-fragile. And as you mentioned, I think it's, it's not a word that's typically kind of in the lexicon of the collective consciousness that, that certainly should be. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, it's, uh, it, it'll improve your relationship with stress too, because I mean, you're only going to release cortisol if you perceive something to be stressful. Right. So if you see something as an opportunity, as opposed to like this crippling stress, like not only are you going to overcome it and gain from it, but you know, your, your hormones will be better forward as well. Sure. What about, um, do, do you have any, any personal heroes, anyone you look up to? Yeah. I mean, you know, the whole thing of a patron saint is a really tricky thing um, because, you know, when you're a convert, it chooses you. I was going to pick, you know, St. Christopher or St. Moses of Ethiopia, 
by St. Christopher, the original green martyr, martyrdom through labor, prayer through labor, carrying people across the river. Um, but what emerged about a month out was St. Constantine, you know, the, um, the ender of Christian martyrdom, um, facilitator of the Council of Nicaea, the great emperor of Rome, combatant, writer, facilitator. Um, I, 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 they say you become more and more, you're like your patron saint. I'm, you know, feeling that more and more, which is, which is a beautiful thing. Um, so yeah, St. Constantine, St. Christopher, St. John Maximovich, the saint of San Francisco, Miyamoto Musashi. Um, I mean, I think the, the thing outside of Christianity that I'm most, my father, honestly, my father is one of the toughest men I've ever met. He's also the analytic, most analytically intelligent man I've ever met. And, you know, um, I've been around a certain amount of years in my life and, uh, you know, I still haven't met anyone analytically smarter. I know they're out there, right? Um, mm -hmm. but you know, uh, it's, uh, you get, you get to meet him basically. And, uh, so yeah, my dad, those saints that I mentioned, Miyamoto Musashi, Flossowitz, um, in terms of writing, uh, Nut Hempson, Nut Hempson is the father of stream of consciousness writing. We would not have Hemingway, Virginia Woolf, Jean-Paul Sattva. Jean um, without Hampson, Alexander Dumas, I think, wrote the greatest book of all time in the Count of Monte Cristo. Um, we're talking about fiction. You know, peak literature really is, you know, either, you know, pre, pre-revolution Russian literature or prime French romanticism, which Count of Monte Cristo is the centerpiece of. Saying something because there's, you know, Stendhal and Victor Hugo. Um, so those two for writers are Dumas and, you know, Hemingway and Fitzgerald as well. Those two live in my psyche. Um, as far as sports sciences goes, my vocation, um, Yuri Verhovshansky is the greatest sports scientist of all time. You know, it's plain and simple. It's not close. Um, and in terms of fighters, um, gosh, uh, Rob Kamen, greatest kickboxer of all time. Uh, Sanchai, uh, one of the greatest knockmoy ever. Um, I think the guy I'll probably fight most like is, uh, Artem Vahitov because he's, you know, 6-1 at light heavyweight. I'm 6-1 at light heavyweight. And, uh, you know, particular, uh, particular style. Um, yeah, it's, uh, just to say today, a few, you know, a lot of guys have really influenced me. I mean, you know, Jocko and Goggins have had a massive influence on me. Henry Rollins has had a massive influence on me with the intensity with which he lived his life. And, uh, you know, all, they, all these people have taught me so much. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just same with you. Yeah. I, I think, uh, I, I like that you have a lot, right? Because it emphasizes, I think, one of the recurring themes that I find when I ask that question, which is, I think it's very hard to, it's very hard to find individuals throughout history or that we know that like we truly like look up to and want to emulate in every way because everyone has, everyone is human. Everyone has weaknesses, right? So I think that we think that what we should do is we should look to certain people for inspiration, um, for components of our personality. It's, it's, we should be very slow and very hesitant, I think, to, to want to just completely emulate one human being, right? Because we're, we're just all flawed. We, we all have things that we fall short on. So, um, looking to, you know, diverse people for inspiration, I think is, is smart. And then yeah. the last question I want to ask you, so. If you could go back in time and speak to a younger version of yourself, maybe someone in your teenage years, 
and give yourself a piece of advice, what what would it be? I'm being honest, man. I would just I would just tell them don't run away with your your ads. It's a gigantic waste of time. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's it's uh. I mean, and I I say that too because like, you know, I I I could tell them more reading. I could tell them you know things that I've been through. You know, at a younger age, like 21, I, I actually, I got it, you know, like I didn't know as much, but I, I got it. Right. And I just went wayward with the wrong woman. And that was catastrophic for a while. And, you know, all's well that ends well, because I'm with a woman who I love dearly and I'm going to marry in two months and we're moving to the UK and I'll still be doing everything I'm doing. But like, I wish I had that time back. So I'd be, you know, have trained more, my body be more physically developed, be a Christian, you know, return to work. Yeah, maybe that's a cautionary tale for anyone listening. No, you can't save her if she doesn't want to be saved. You know, I was very headstrong with the wrong woman. I was on a crusade that, you know, it was hard, but it wasn't worth it. So identify, you know, where God's actually pushing you. Because he definitely wasn't pushing me there. It's the whole prodigal son bit that I had to go through that he'll use. But I'm sure that's not what he would have wanted. Um, So, yeah, I I would tell him, like, yeah. Have her stay blocked and uh, carry on, man. <laughs> carry on because you, you got it back then. So yeah, yeah. Be be mindful of your of your time, right? Like don't don't chase this. Uh, the, don't go on this goose chase. That's going to take you nowhere. Definitely, definitely. Cool, Arthur. Well, you know, like I I enjoyed picking your brain a little bit. I, I definitely gave me some stuff to, to consider, to think about. Um, I'm going to look a little bit more into Eastern Orthodox. It's something I've, I've talked to my fiance about a little bit and uh, yeah, I do, I do some research. I, I like the idea of the, the center of your religion being, being prayer. I think that that's, that's something that I've kind of been living by. So I'm, I'm, you've piqued my curiosity. I'm going to, going to do some more research. So thank you for that. I'm glad yeah, I'm glad to hear. And if you know, if you have any questions you want to shoot my way, obviously I'm not a priest, but um, you know, I'm happy to answer it anytime. Definitely. All right. Well, thanks again, Arthur, so much for coming on, and I uh, hope you have a great rest of your day. Likewise, brother. God bless. Thanks for listening to the Renaissance Wisdom Podcast, and hopefully you learned at least one lesson on today's episode. Our mission here is to uncover practical wisdom to create a better way of living for our audience. If you enjoyed this episode, please help us by leaving the show a review on your podcast platform of choice and by giving it a share on social media. This really helps us to grow our audience and to continue to add more episodes. If you are interested in learning more, please check out our website at renaissance-wisdom.com or check out the book that started it all, Renaissance Wisdom, How to Flourish in the Modern Day, now on Amazon. Thank you again, and may wisdom be your guide.